Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq Alameen, and we're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, and we're streaming at WCEV1450.com. You can keep up with us on social media by following and liking our pages. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you'll find us at Radio Islam USA. That is at Radio Islam USA. And also take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. You will find us on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Tune in, and basically anywhere else that you might get your podcast. Look for us at Radio Islam USA. All right, Radio Islam family, we are talking Chicago. As you know, we are straight out of Chicago. WCEV 1450 AM is the station that you hear us on. I want to go ahead and give a moment to the impressive one, assistant producer, my co-host, Ibrahim Beg. To give the greetings to you. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. Um, as you all know, as you all know, uh, our present mayor, Rahm Emanuel, is not seeking uh, re-election. And because of that, we have, I think, what was the last count? Like, well, who knows how many? Like 20 people, I don't know. But it's, it's a whole lot of people who are throwing their... Uh, name, throwing their hat, their name in the hat, uh, running for mayor, right? And everybody is going to have to deal with a looming pension crisis. We're coming up on a ramp year. Uh, and so all the candidates are being asked on about how they are going to raise money. And of course, raise money, we generally associate that with raising taxes. Um, so Bill Daly, who is, uh, of course, the brother of former mayor, Richard Daly. He is also, um, he's one of the candidates. And a solution was attributed to him, which... And first of all, how did Bill Daly just hmm? come out of nowhere and <laughs> become a candidate? Uh, you know, because and he's why? Daly. Because yeah. he's Bill Daly. Now, I know he, he did work, what was it, in the uh, Clinton administration? I think uh, uh, briefly might have been chief probably. of staff or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I right. mean, so he he's got some political chops, but as far as Chicago goes, you know, he's basically been. I think absent. he was in the, I think he was in the Clinton administration, and he had some position in the Obama administration too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what it was, but yeah, that that sounds right. But yeah, so he's one of the guys who's in the fray, and we're going to be talking about. A suggestion that was attributed to him, but which he denied, uh, and that suggestion was to implement a commuter tax. You know what a commuter tax is? Uh, vaguely, I mean it's it's hard to define, mm -hmm. right? Because once you start taxing people, once the city of Chicago starts taxing people who don't even live in Chicago, and who aren't actually purchasing something from the city of chicago you know it's not like a it's not like a sales tax right right uh, which we already pay everyone already pays several um right the pay the plastic bags and mm -hmm. bottled water and so on and so on but for the city of chicago to say that even though you don't live with us you still have to pay us taxes mm -hmm. is a is a strange concept a problematic concept to me it's an extension of 
it's an extension of the like the state income tax. That's basically what we're looking at. And now I'm not arguing for it, just to give clarity for those who might not understand what the commuter tax is. If you're not a resident of Chicago, you live outside of the Chicago city limits, but you work in Chicago, this idea is that either you or the employer would be responsible for paying a tax on your income. Now, you got folks that are on both sides of this for reasons that we will uh, illuminate. But first off, you mentioned that if you're not buying something, if you're not paying for something, you're not getting a good or service, that you should not be paying, you shouldn't be paying a tax, right? To uh, the city. Right. right. No, no, but here's, here's an argument. For the sake of argument, the people that come here, uh, they don't live here. They, they com- they're commuters. Don't they benefit from city services? Like CTA? Uh, CDOT, right? Uh, Chicago Department of Transportation. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, transportation. Maybe CTA. CTA is paid for. CTA, the person, the user has to pay for it. Okay, but still, transportation services. Police, fire. Mm-hmm. Right, um, those are services they they benefit from that Chicago residents bear the burden of paying for through their uh, uh, through taxes, real estate, mm-hmm. right, and fines and fees and all this other stuff. So, is it a fair question to say why should they be exempt? Why should they be able to just sweep swoop in from Bolingbroke or from Indiana anywhere you know? Mm-hmm. Northwest Indiana or Skokie or any other place, why should they be able to just come in, collect a check, and leave and not have to contribute to the maintenance or the services that that they also benefit from? I can see why someone would ask the question, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's a, a legitimate argument Okay, for many reasons. Because the employees, they're already paying state taxes in Chicago is within the state of Illinois. The employers that are located in the city of Chicago are already paying huge taxes mm-hmm. on you know property, whether it be property taxes, the building, the owners, or uh, you know other kinds. Maybe not. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're a business that has is is benefiting from tax breaks. What well, do that, you? That has to be individual, you know, case by case basis. Right. Then we don't I, know. All uh, right, I mean, we, we don't know. That, like, we we don't know, but we know that that's a major. Uh, that's a major selling point for any new business. So, I mean, yeah, we'd have to look and, and, and see how long the business has been around. If it's one of those businesses that's not paying uh, taxes, they're getting a break. Uh, so in that case, there's no revenue for the state. And then even paying state taxes, those state taxes, but I don't think we they're can dispersed, ass- right? Yeah, I don't They don't think, just go to Chicago. I don't think we can assume that companies aren't paying any taxes. No, no, I'm just throwing tax it out there for breaks, the consideration. Maybe, okay, tax, yeah. maybe they get some tax breaks, but I don't think there's any company here in the loop that's just not paying taxes. Right, right. Well, they may not be paying, but they may not be paying at a, a rate that's really uh, commensurate, with, commensurate with their mm-hmm. actual revenues. If that's the case, that's between them and the city or them and the state. It shouldn't be the burden shouldn't be put on the employees the commuters Mm -hmm. but still we're going back to the idea of of being able to benefit from services yeah right 
and then and not having to take part in maintaining those services. What do you say to that? Because even even though they're paying state taxes, once again, the state distribution of revenue. We know Chicago's the biggest city, but mm-hmm. there there are a lot of cities. There are a lot of municipalities that you know, if it comes to distribution or whatever, or supporting those municipalities, it's not all going to Chicago. Yeah, they're already paying also uh, sales tax. Anything for the they state? buy in the city. Oh, for the city. Yeah. Okay. All right. But we we still are brought back to right. If we have this pension crisis, mm-hmm. um, and then and not just not just pension, right? We can look at other services, uh, but we have this this aversion to we don't want to take on any more taxes. We don't yeah. want our real estate taxes to go up. Yeah. Uh, and we don't want to see more fees and fines implemented that have historically affected those who are least able to pay them. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, vis-a-vis the, the whole boot program. So what's what's left? What, what, how could a commuter tax um, be viable? Or do you think it's something that is just not even worth looking at? I don't think it's worth looking at. I think it probably will be uh, thrown out there again. Mm-hmm. But um, I think you kind of touched on what really is going on here, which is a scramble. There's a scramble to deal with the pension crisis and to try to get some money, more money from somewhere without raising property taxes mm-hmm. and without burdening uh, city residents anymore. And like I said, there's just this scramble going on. So there's these there's going to be crazy ideas and not so crazy ideas and people are going to have to sort through it because uh the city of chicago and the state of illinois are in somewhat of a like an emergency disastrous situation financially yeah yeah that's really what's going on here all right and is that the the commuter's fault you know not really <laughs> but i think it's looking for if you're talking about looking for additional sources of revenue uh and bill daly said that he did not suggest a commuter tax, but he did say that everything is on the table. So he's not saying that he would consider it. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know exactly what happened. It seems like he must have hinted at it or something. Mm-hmm. And then because that's why the Tribune responded uh, to it, right. to the, the idea. And then after that, Bill Daly sent them a letter, which is kind of what we're looking at right now, you and me, mm-hmm. in which he denies, uh, he says, I did not propose or endorse a commuter tax or any other type of tax or fee. But then he goes on to say that I just, I'm just saying that, you know, we have to avoid raising property taxes on city residents and everything is on the table. Mm. So it kind of sounds like he might have suggested something, something similar, yeah. but he's just saying I officially didn't endorse it or whatever. Now, I'm saying this without having actually seen the responses from people at the introduction of the red light cameras, mm-hmm. okay, uh, which have disproportionately affected poorer communities, you know, by the way they're positioned. Right. So I don't know what the response was as far as uh, in, in, in the Tribune. in the Tribune or anywhere else. Um, But that being said, there have been 
uh, in, in this editorial that we're looking at, there's a response that's been uh, that's been given by folks who are not in favor, but also those who are. Yeah. Right. So I want to look at um, look up at, look at some of the people who are saying that they're in favor. So this this one comment. Well, before I say that, I'm, let me go back just a minute, real quick. So the reason I brought up the red light cameras, once again, I go back to this idea of when it's been time to raise revenue, it's it's put on those people who really have the the least uh, the least ability to really advocate or resist. They just you know kind of just beaten down and forced to deal with you know paying six hundred dollars for a, a boot, you know, personal experience. Um, you know, I'm just grateful I was able to, you know, I was able to pay that. But I think about those who, you know, who aren't, right? But their voices aren't really heard. So anyway, so I'm going back to um, one of the voices that says that they are in favor of taxing the commuters. Uh, so because somebody has to pay, that's what really comes comes down to. So it says pony up commuters. Uh, in response to your editorial about Bill Daly, the mayoral candidate suggesting a commuter tax, I will bet. Not many Tribune employees live in Chicago boundaries. It's arguable, right? That's just, you know, throwing it out there. Uh, therefore, they are no more interested in paying a tax to come into the city to work or write an objective column about the city's financial woes. Um, <clears> Hart <throat> goes on to say, move into Chicago and you won't have to pay the tax. But the number of people who travel into Chicago and utilize the services we Chicagoans pay for is enormously high. Bill Daly is the first candidate in this circus who has brought up a solution that makes sense to Chicagoans. Maybe Will Met can supplement its tax base by charging a commuter tax with all their opportunities for employment in that rich suburb. And it closes out with, if you work in Chicago, you need to help pay for these pensions that support the very services that prevent mayhem for, from occurring on a daily basis. And that was from Mary Byrne in Chicago. Uh, what do you say to that? It's a um, it's language. It's it's good language, but it's basically saying tax people who are uh, wealthy. That's basically what it means. Because I don't think this same person. Oh, the Wilmette reference. Uh, yeah, the Wilmette reference makes it clear. Yeah. But for example, what if someone lives in Cicero and then crosses the street to come work in uh, Lawndale or whatever? Should they have also have to pay a tax? I don't think people will advocate for that. Well, maybe they will. I don't know. Um, but that's also a commuter, technically. Or if someone comes from maybe even further away, maybe someone comes from uh, Maywood, or so there's a little bit further away, Bellwood. Yeah. Uh, south suburbs, Harvey. Maybe even as far as Aurora or Joliet or Elgin, which all have their kind of classical low-income areas, mm -hmm. right? Should those people also ha should be based? If it was, if you, if someone could argue, oh well, maybe it's based on mileage. Then okay, not Cicero, not you know Skokie or whatever. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's based on mileage. But there's low income areas <laughs> as far as you can go. You know, this is true. Um, so it's just it's a can of worms that is not going to really solve any problems. I doubt it would solve the pension crisis anyway, even right. if it were to be implemented. Mm -hmm. But it's going to. Um, cause so many other problems which is one of one of which is uh discouraging uh people from working in the city 
to avoid the tax mm. and discouraging businesses from setting up uh, you know big offices or whatever in the city because they won't find employees that want to work there well I don't think that the tax necessarily takes away from Chicago still being a a global uh, a global city uh, as well as you know as a hub it's it's the it's the jewel of the, of the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, and those businesses that are here, especially those that are, you know, we're talking about brick and mortar businesses that have multi-year leases or they own property, uh, whatever the, the case may be, it may not be as simple at, for them as just packing up and, and moving away, especially depending if their services or whatever their business is, is tied to the area. Um, that's something to look at, but I want to go back to this this particular writer's uh, this this per, uh, individual's comment about the lack of investment from uh, from folks who don't live here. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's the first thing, right? You're not really concerned. You're more concerned about the house burning down if you have to live in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's that that's a fair point. Uh, and I also want to go back and bring this. Uh, I, th- I think we have to contrast or really be mindful of repeating what has been done in the past. Uh, and I go back again to say that we can't keep throwing the responsibility to uh, to make sure that you know we're solvent on those who are least able to to advocate, least you know the lower wage earners. And I, I like your point that even in what we would consider to be the more uh, affluent areas, they still have their pockets. Right, but so that means that in addition to uh, they have their pockets of low income earners. So I think in addition to mileage, we'd really have to look at income. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it would come down to. Um, how how much are you actually earning? Um, and I say this, and I'm hating myself a little bit because I got this thing with the IRS. I mean, I really. I just, I really can't, I can't stand it. I mean, our, our tax, really, I mean, really, it, it's it's the more you make, the more they want to take. Uh, and it feels like a purposeful tactic to keep you at a particular level. Um, but that's another conversation. So I wouldn't want to replicate that, but I do feel that it's fair to pay your share. Um, and I don't know how that, you know, how that looks. Maybe there's a special... Uh, there's a special vehicle sticker, um, and you know what? And even even as I say that, I'm kind of, you know, kind of thrown up in my mouth a little bit as I say this because there's so many taxes. Yeah. You know, in the city, there's so many taxes, and it's like, is this mismanagement? You know, how do how do we get to the point where we continually have to add another tax in? I mean, Chicago is really becoming a punchline for uh, conservatives, for economic conservatives. And I honestly think there's a grain of truth, right, in my opinion, to this notion that uh, taxing everyone and everything is going to drive, slowly drive businesses out and drive people out of the city mm-hmm. who are attracted to areas that are, you know, like right next door, but they don't have to pay all these taxes on everything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You, you mean that's going to drive people 
to move to those um, within the city? Or uh, Well, it could have two effects. One is to encourage gentrification by, you know, people who are saying, okay, in order to do, uh, avoid the tax, I'll just move into the city, right? And right. that's how gentrification does. I think that's a less likely outcome. A person who is, like, well-qualified or whatever, to they can get any job they want if they could choose they would choose to get a job somewhere else rather than choose to keep the same job and keep paying taxes and then like move into but, the city but to that's avoid the dependent taxes, that's know? dependent upon that whole idea of uh, gentrification is dependent upon an area being ripe for that uh depends on how do you define that an area being ripe for that uh so generally we're looking at uh areas that are lower socioeconomic um uh, uh status mm-hmm. right uh, that don't have the same amount of uh, services, that have higher, generally higher crime rates, uh, or are not invested. You know, there's a lack of investment, public and, and private. I think it just has to do with low property values and low rent. But those, That's the main thing. But now if you're talking you about a city, though, that yeah. generally those characteristics kind of go along with those other things I mentioned generally, right? I mean, it's a long story. Like, it's a long process. Yeah. Um, I don't think there has to be the presence of a high crime rate and bad infrastructure for the property value to be low, right? I mean, it could lead to that over a long time, but um, there's places like, for example, like Logan Square and and now Pilsen is starting to happen uh, quite a bit where it wasn't necessarily like a high crime area, but property values were low enough that people started to to move in because property values in other places like Wicker Park or whatever were now rising because the whole process started. Now there's these like secondary areas. People go there so they can be close to other stuff, and it kind of cascades that way. So we should say subjectively low in terms of attractive for possibly for higher wage uh, earners, for higher income earners. Yeah, right. I would just low low property value, low rents, yeah. and access to the trains. Hmm. Now that's a uh, that's because people don't want to live like somewhere really far. Yeah. You know where they won't be able to get to the loop or whatever. Right. Now I just heard a, a piece on this about um, there was something. It was like there was something that was signed into part of the municipal code or something that had to do with funding for uh, around the uh, city's existing transportation, uh, the L in mm-hmm. particular, uh, but how that's not really working out. It's, it's, not, um, it's not coming to fruition, you know, with any kind of equity. Uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of falling along racial lines, but that's, that is a, a, a different uh, conversation. It's also an di- interesting example of the CTA, the L line specifically, yeah. and the buses too, because these are services that already extend to the surrounding suburbs a little bit, like Skokie and Oak Park and stuff like that. And yeah. the people from there who use the services, they will also put into it by paying the fare. But that's pace that hits outside the city limits. No. That'll get you right. Those are all no, those are pace buses. Like way outside the city limits, it's yeah. pace. But in some of the, I think in some of the suburbs that touch the city, uh-huh. I think it's still CTA, isn't it? I'm not clear on that. I'm not Cause, clear. Cause I mean, because I've seen I've L, seen the pace buses. Like if I'm, 
um, where was that? Like Broadway and Narragansett. No, not like 6300 around North Avenue, something like so. North Avenue, 1600, mm-hmm. and near Narragansett. That wasn't a CTA bus. Okay. That was a. That was yeah. It was a it was a pace bus, I think. So I, I don't know what the breakdown is on those. You know, that's something to look. But more importantly, um, does that does that contribution really equal the same uh, contribution that you know that residents are putting in? Yeah. Uh, no, it does not, Big. But um, I think we need to separate between residents and non-residents you know yeah um to say that you got to pay the same yeah to yeah, say yeah i don't think, to think a non-resident you have to pay the same or close to as much as a city resident mm-hmm. is just uh it's a little bit crazy i want to take us to a few steps back and uh, and get your thoughts i mentioned is are we looking at mismanagement um or uh, because when we think <clears throat> we just brought on or maybe the goal is to bring on a thousand more police officers, and I think we're still in the middle of that right now. There's a facility over on a, what they term in Cop Academy, I think, on, on the west mm-hmm. side. It's supposed to be like a 90 plus million dollar facility, uh, and residents are protesting that. They're saying we want investment in the community. Are our elected officials just so far off the base as to how they're spending the public's resources? Uh, to think that, you know, that that it makes sense to spend as much money as we are, in terms of our uh, in terms of our police, instead of you know as taking that on as a long-term cost, in a, in addition to uh, developments and other things like that, where we could actually be spurring the economy uh, in the city, but instead we're we're doing things to dig a deeper hole for ourselves. What are your thoughts on that? I really can't speak to as far as whether or not there's mismanagement. I mean, is the crisis caused by mismanagement or can it be um, prevented by managing funds better? Mm. I, I don't honestly know, because it's not my expertise, whether there's actually enough money out there in the flowing in the system of the city yeah. to be to to patch everything up or is there just simply not enough money at all you know um but it's an important question that needs to be i don't know i don't know if, if it will be answered but um a lot of it depends on that yeah because it's like there's a there's a problem with the direction we keep finding ourselves trying to patch the uh, patch the leak like when we talk about the federal government mm-hmm. it seems much more likely that okay it's a case of mis- mismanagement you know there's enough money out there to cover this, to cover that, uh, we have military and bases in all over the world and stuff like that. You know, right. so there's enough money in the system to patch this up or patch that up, and and you know manage everything correctly. In the city of Chicago, I just don't know if that's the case, or is it really a case of we literally don't have enough money? I'm gonna I'm gonna echo you on this, not having the hard uh, hard data. You know, and, and certainly not being uh, an, an expert uh, in that field, but just the sentiment is: if you keep seeing the same situation play itself out, it would it would kind of you know common sense for me says you're doing something wrong. Mm. 
you know, you're, you're doing the same thing. We keep having, we keep kicking the can down the road. Uh, and at some point, somebody's going to actually have to pay for it. So one of the folks, I, I want to share again, one of the folks who, who wrote in for this editorial, um, who is not in favor uh, of the commuter tax. Now, he says, uh, I'm a 35-year-old male and 10-year resident of Chicago, East Lakeview. My girlfriend and I are teetering on the edge of moving out of the city. He says, I can't tell you how many ticky-tack taxes have been added in the last four years alone. The most recent is an amusement tax of $9 per month on my streaming services. This is yet another way to gouge citizens. Where does it end? If not next year, soon we will be voting with our feet. I'm going to pause right there. And to this idea of is there enough money? Does Chicago have enough money? Right. Neither, neither one of us knows this, you know, uh, for a fact. But when you hear about taxes like this, nine dollars a month for streaming yeah all right on top of you know you thought you were doing good paying ten dollars whatever your streaming is right uh but now you got an additional nine dollars and then you think about what's one of the other taxes we have uh here the um the plastic bag tax yeah right so you know i just make sure i have my book bag yeah i never get a bag you know i don't care i walk out with stuff in my hands um Bottled water tax. Bottled water tax. So I don't buy. I don't buy water. I'm saying it out loud. I don't buy water in Chicago if I can, if I can avoid it. Well, you know, we buy water here. Is this thing get taxed? I mean, we're looking at this uh, jug of water, like a milk jug full of water. Does that get the bottle, the bottled water tax too? Or I, no? I don't know. Hmm. I don't know because Th- this is imported from outside oh, okay. of Chicago. <laughs> No, I'm just wondering if you bought like a milk jug of water. Yeah, would that, that gallon. also get the bottled water tax. That's a good. That's a good. I think it's just for the bottle individual like serving. Impact. Okay. Yeah, um, and of course the red light cameras. Um, the infamous red light cameras. Yeah. Yeah, and when you you, you look at all those things, um, and there's stuff that we we're not talking about. I don't think it's a matter of money. It's just my, my, my intuition, my own, my own gut is telling me it's not just a matter of money. It's a matter, it's a problem with the direction that our, um, that the administrations with continuity, you know, that they've had. And, and it's, it's this house of cards. Mm-hmm. You keep investing, and I, and I know I'm going back to police, right? That's just one, one part of the uh, concern but with all the disinvestment that we've seen uh, that's been allowed to continue on the south and west sides in particular, um, with the tax breaks that we've given to, you know, to, to, to businesses, uh, and with the hiring of more and more police but not investing in, in services, you know, for community services, mental health services, when you start looking at all of this, it's, it's a cycle of neglect. And there's a cost to it, you know. There's a cost to that neglect, and nobody wants to have to have to pay for it. Nobody wants to be responsible for it. Certainly not the administration, and definitely not those who are who may find themselves in more of a position to actually pay than than others. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I don't know. It's going to be a. It'll be a question that each one of these candidates is going to have to 
have to ask. But I think it's going to really come back to not just a community tax. It's going to come back to a reorienting uh, and, a, and a reassessing of how the city is functioning and how it's, how it's spending uh, the, the residents' money. There's one uh, other letter that I want to read mm -hmm. from this same section. Yeah. It's a bit melodramatic. Uh, I'm kind of hard to take laughing. seriously, but it brings up something which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, so one of the people says, Sounds like we suburbanites who toil and spend money in Chicago and also pay state income tax that supports the city mm. may have to dump some deep dish pizza in Monroe Harbor, oh, okay. perhaps at Queen's Landing even to remind certain mayoral candidates about something American revolutionaries called taxation without representation. You don't live here, man. <laughs> yeah, that is a little melodramatic. Um, but I like the idea of bringing up uh, taxation without representation. Uh, if, I'm, if I am not living in a certain city, yeah. I shouldn't be... Uh, because, well, let me put it this way. We talked about how p commuters might benefit from the services of the city. Right. Um, if a commuter was to pay a tax, they would not be benefiting from, well, they're not benefiting from those services as much as city residents, right? So the flip side to that coin is why should they have to pay more if they're benefiting from those services less? Why well, it, has to, it has to take that into consideration. Yeah. If something like that would go for it, it, it couldn't be you're going to pay the same rate that Chicago residents are paying. Right. That, that wouldn't make not. any sense. No. Right. So it would have to be uh, it would have but to be something that takes all those factors into consideration. Right. Because they do pay, like I said, sales tax. If they buy something. If they buy something. Right. Uh, their employers pay taxes. Right. For being here. Um but those are state taxes. Uh, those are state yeah, taxes. Mostly. Yeah. So. Well, state. Everyone pays state taxes. Right. Um, but property taxes for the office being here and so on. Sure. It's yeah. some way you know it's related to that. Yeah. Yeah. This. Yeah. Okay. The city definitely uh, gets in on that, but. So it's hard to like go into yeah. someone's life and micromanage and say, okay, you're benefiting from city services this much, so proportionally you need to pay like this much back, or this city resident is paying, uh, benefiting from city services this much. I don't know how that would actually work, you know, to yeah. balance it out that way. And even the arguments I'm, I'm given are really more, I, I think, just more for the uh, to serve the purpose of just illustrating the different points. Um, I think that they need to get their stuff together. Yeah. Uh, that That's really the bottom line. Because to have a conversation about a commuter tax, when you already have these all these other taxes and fines and fees that are, uh, that are already on the books, and you still can't work things out. Mm -hmm. you st now, you, now, you, now you're basically standing around looking for people to tax. Yeah. You know, if uh, they're going to try to find a way to tax folks that live in Mexico or find people, you know, we're going to tax people uh, that live the, the bordering states mm -hmm. of Illinois. Yeah. You know, if you come from Wisconsin or whatever. Um, they would if they could. Yeah. And, and there's something <laughs> there's something wrong with that. 
There's something wrong with that. You can't keep kicking this can down the road. Get it together. Our taxes, we, don't, we should not be paying uh, what we do in taxes. Uh, and I certainly, I'm going to agree with this deep dish tosser uh, in, in terms of uh, no taxation without representation. Because I don't know who I voted for that has, uh, that has authorized some of these bills that I've been getting. Um, you know, that, that's probably going to be my next, my next crusade. Uh, the next letter, the next nasty gram I send to somebody is going to be about <laughs> about this IRS uh, IRS tax code. Uh, absolutely out the just just out the park nonsense. So Chicago candidates, they, they need to do something different. Yeah. Um, also worth mentioning that Bill Daly says in this letter that this response that he wrote to the Tribune. Yeah that his main plan or whatever is to increase the population of the city of Chicago to 3 million or something like that, um, as opposed to raising taxes on residents that already live here or something like that. Um, well, that's we'll interesting. Uh, and that's really interesting considering the number of residents we lost, that we, that we have lost. Over the past few decades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, if we go back to... It was 3 million at one point, yeah. the population. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a variety, a variety of different reasons, but it's not just Chicago losing residents. Illinois, in general, yeah. has been losing residents. Uh, so we're, we're sort of like a, uh, a microcosm of Illinois' own financial uh, turmoil. And we mm -hmm. see it playing, that, playing out, you know, on the, uh, on, on the Chicago stage. So it's funny you mentioned the word microcosm. I liked what uh, you brought up in our conversation off the air, mm -hmm. the kind of similarity between this, what we're talking about, and economic nationalism, which we talked about last uh, week, right? yeah. which is kind of this notion that whatever money is, whatever uh, income or whatever type of goods or whatever economic uh, power is produced by the country and needs to stay within the country and benefit only the people of the country. Right. Um, and that we kind of see that same notion being echoed here, but with a city twist, you know, that yeah. whatever is happening in Chicago economically, well, Chicagoans are the only ones who should, or the main people who right. should benefit from that. Yeah. Um, yeah and, and what's interesting is that even, even those who espouse, you know, this type of uh, ideology, um, it's important to see what their intention is. Uh, yeah. That it's really not about, it's not, it's not really about the citizens um, reaping the benefit of that production. It's, it's just a select few. Because mm -hmm. uh, one of the things we talked about in that, uh, in that conversation last week was 8.6% uh, uh, of the population controls 86% of the world's wealth yeah. and resources. So, and, and they have the they have the mechanism, right? They got the platform to shout louder, uh, to dress their ideas up uh, prettier, and to have them uh, echoing in multiple spaces. So I think even with something like uh, a commuter tax, and those who, you know, might might look at it in a way of um, we need it because it's going to help us. Eh, you might you might find yourself actually getting suckered. And I, as, as I, we're talking through this, um, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna put this back in the lap of those people who continue to pass budgets, who continue to uh, approve uh, financial allocations and new hirings and all this other stuff and tax breaks, and then try to figure out how they're gonna pay for it. So I put it back. I put it back squarely on their shoulders. Yeah. I would just end with this, trying to end on a positive note. That um, positivity. As someone who grew up in the Chicago area, the Chicago suburbs, not within the city limits, but um, I would say we need to stop looking at things in terms of uh, city limits versus the suburbs or suburbs versus the city, that, that, that these two kind of sides are like pitted against each other. And I would tend to look at it more in terms of the whole metropolitan area as a whole, this whole eight, nine, ten million people, whatever, yeah. that live in this whole area, as more uh, in the sense of that, like one huge area that uh, is interconnected, you know? And it's very much interconnected and very much dependent on other parts of that area. Well, I'm gonna agree with you, and I think it is, in a, uh, from an operational standpoint, we see this happening all the time. Like um, when we go, well, us the, from the suburbs, when we mm -hmm. go somewhere else in the state. You're still on what I'm about to say. <laughs> go ahead and say uh, it. If you go to <laughs> some other country or some other state or whatever, and people ask us, where are you from? We typically we don't say Illinois. We just say Chicago. That's right. You know, Because it's one area. We don't mm -hmm. feel uh, people's accents and everything. I mean, it's all kind of the same, the same culture or whatever that you want to talk about. The Chicago yeah. area. It's the, it's, it is the jewel. Whatever. It's, it's, and it's the, the suburbs um, would not be the suburbs without the city, and the city yeah. would not be the same without the suburbs surrounding it. Well, and, and the truth is, if you're thing. if you're across, if you're overseas somewhere or you're in another state or whatever, and somebody asks you where you're from, and you go, "I'm from Streamwood," right? Then we go, what's that? Yeah, what's what's the Streamwood? Um, or they might think you're from the Streamwood there because <laughs> you know we <laughs> we found a lot of these places, these names exist in yeah. other uh, other states. But you say Chicago because that's, regardless if you're 30 miles outside of uh, Chicago or not, when you're somewhere else, you're repping Chicago. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I, I agree that, um, yeah, there shouldn't be this, this manufactured friction. Um, somebody got to pay. And I'm going to say, let's put it back on those who control the purse strings. And they have they have done so. So positivity. Appreciate that. All right, Radio Islam family, we're going to take a short break, but we will be back in a moment. This is Radio Islam on WCEV 1450 AM. The Syrian Community Network with offices nationwide serves its Chicago area clients from its Northside location located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872-806-0141. That's area code 872-806-0141. 0141 or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org.
Soviets has taken everything and everyone I've ever loved away from me. Everything. I blew my ankle out and I got prescribed pain pills by my doctor. If making my detox public is gonna help somebody, I'm all for it. I just wish I would have had a warning. Opioid dependence can happen after just five days. Know the truth, spread the truth. A message from Truth, the Ad Council, and ONDCP. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are broadcasting on WCEB 1450 AM, and we're streaming at WCEB1450.com. If you are new to the Radio Islam family, we welcome you. Thanks for tuning in. Keep up with us on social media by following and liking our pages. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And also take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and iTunes. So make sure you are following us there as well at Radio Islam USA. All right, folks, as you know, we're on uh, every day from 6 to 7 p.m. Central, coming to you from the wonderful city of Chicago, Illinois. And we're going to be talking today about a topic that's not just relative to Chicago, but something that has a national, um, dare I say global, importance uh, as well. Uh, and that is the end of employees. Uh, and that's taken directly from, uh, from a recent article um, that happened to read. And I have in the studio joining me to discuss this concept in this article, uh, Jamie Merchant, and he is the media director of the Center for Progressive Strategy and Research in Chicago, as well as the media director for Justice for All. And we are happy to talk with him again. How are you doing, Jamie? Good. Thank you for having me again. You know, it always works when I have your mic on. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> are you good? Yeah, indeed. <laughs> okay. All right. Quite good. All right. That's working out fine. <laughs> so in our, our, our last conversation, we, we talked a, a a bit about labor and nationalism and uh, global worker solidarity. Uh, and in this particular art article, which I believe was uh, from the uh, Wall Street Journal, mm -hmm. uh, there is a pretty grim picture that's being painted. And um, when I first heard the title, The End of uh, Employees, my mind went to the Uber model. Mm -hmm. Right. I didn't, I, I didn't even have to go outside of the U.S., even though I know Uber is not just U.S., but mm -hmm. um, I immediately thought about this idea of contractors, independent contractors. Uh, but but this, this article, it delves a bit deeper. What was the first thing that, that came to mind for you as somebody who, who, who's, who studies this, who researches uh, in, in this area? What was the first thing that came to mind for you? Like sort of when I just saw that the, the title yeah. right off the bat before yeah. I got to any of it? Mm -hmm. I thought it was maybe going to be more straight up about automation and the replacement of of working people with new technologies and new new forms of industrial production or or, or service production or whatever. But it turned out to be mainly about this issue of subcontracting. Right, right, and 
without even going into specifics just yet, there is uh, this this idea of removing employees from some of the the larger companies um, is it's really something that's being embraced. And when we look at it, we have to look at it from a, you know, I'm always a, a person that wants to look at what's the intent behind it, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I know there are multiple conversations, right? There's the, there's the pro conversation uh, mm -hmm. when, when businesses discuss this, like what's their core business? Uh, how can they be more efficient? How can they be more competitive? Uh, and, and those are legitimate business concerns, right? Uh, you gotta have a healthy business if you're gonna employ anybody, period. Mm -hmm. But then there's also the private interest when it becomes a matter of by displacing, by getting rid of 15% of our workforce or 20% of mm -hmm. our workforce, um, we can raise our gains. We can raise our profit margin by point seven, you know, tenths of a percentage. Mm -hmm. For sure. Uh, and, and that's justified. And I think those are two different, those are two different ways to look at it and go about it. Um, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a good way to to frame it. I mean, so the the basic like P, the basic line of of this this of this news article, the, what this reporter is trying to get at, is how increasingly the trend is in not just um, in like what we would used to call low income or low wage work, but increasingly in high end like white so called white collar jobs, professional. Uh, and service jobs, mm -hmm. you're beginning to see this trend of the actual, like a particular company um, just slashing their payroll and removing employees from their payroll in order to outsource uh, particular forms of, of, of work and uh, particular jobs to subcontracted companies that specialize in this or that area. And so, yeah, I mean, like you just said, they're they're trying to increase their profit margins, you know, increase that bottom line by um, basically hiring uh, a subcontracted firm who can make people work for much less than they would have to be paying their own employees. Right. And so they, it's just it's a way to to keep the labor costs way down. Yeah. Now, now there was one there was one company. I'm not going to mention the company's name. Uh, not out of uh, not trying to keep them out the the limelight but just because I can't remember who it was. But <laughs> the company, uh, they had outsourced their receptionist, all their reception mm -hmm. um, functions. They had outsourced to another company. And the reason that was stated in this article was that uh, they found that they were paying their receptionist above market rate. Yeah. And they said, and, you know, and that was just one less thing that they would have to, you know, they would have to worry about, you know, managing uh, you know, it's, it's it's just one less thing off their plate. And then it's also something, uh, it, it puts people in a position from a payroll standpoint where whatever they're earning, whatever they're earning, then it's going to be, uh, I guess it'll be the average of uh, whatever whatever's going on in the market, whatever the average for, the, for that position is in the market. Do you think that that really holds true? Or, you know, do you think that that is uh, simply just a way to, to keep folks from dipping into uh, profit margins. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it'll definitely be the line that you hear from the the manager, the corporate managers, and the HR people, and the the, the C-suite people that it's just about getting labor costs down to market value. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Because what the market pays is fair, and that's why we like competitive markets and and so on and so forth. But 
when you that story begins to kind of evaporate pretty quickly once you start to look at the details and see that in almost every case it's about in many cases it's about going from you know getting rid of employees who had benefits who had nice besides like higher pay maybe above market pay they also had benefits that might have allowed them to to live a better life mm-hmm. than they would otherwise those are being taken away right and being replaced by employees who are paid less without any benefits because they're temporary workers, they're subcontracted workers. And so it becomes a question of like, well, how are you calculating market value? Do you include these like, you know, what used to be considered nice employment packages that include things like health insurance and 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 all the rest um, of that kind of thing or not? Or are you just talking about flat pay mm-hmm. or income rates? So I think it's that's that's typically the the justification you'll hear for it. But it's I think it's it's usually a way to to, it, if you, if the bottom line is, if you're trying to be more competitive, then you want to be paying less than the market rate, right? Because right. you want to be in a more advantageous position, mm-hmm. right? You want that comparative advantage. So that's if you just look at it straight from the self-interest of uh, of a business or a corporation, like they're trying to get that competitive edge, and that means you know beating like undercutting the market in some right. way. Yeah. Now, what this article also shows is that sometimes that approach has uh, it has the opposite. Mm-hmm. Uh, effect, uh, where they become less efficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. in the case of uh, the, this this one company here, who uh, let me see if I got this company's name. You might recall them. Is it the uh, Pratt and Whitney, the jet? Yes, the jet engine company. Yeah, 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 Pratt and Whitney. So they decided that they didn't want to deal with um, packaging yeah. anymore, right? So they they work out a deal with UPS. Uh, UPS builds a facility, a huge facility. And they offer their employees that are, you know, that are material handlers, whatever the, the name is, and they offer them the opportunity to retrain for the position and, and basically move over to UPS and take whatever their, mm-hmm. you know, benefit package is, take whatever their, uh, their, their wage rate is going to be. And, and also with that, um, I believe this was the same case where, uh, the union was, was 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 certainly not in favor of this, but they gave them the case. It was, it was either the option of you come on board or, you know, people chose to retire, you know, whatever. Um, but their production went down. Mm-hmm. Their their production went went way down. They said it was, uh, I think, an estimate was like five hundred million dollars or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah, they lost five hundred million dollars in like mistakes that were made, basically. Yeah, yeah. because and and what's pointed out in the uh, in the article is that those people that were uh, either replaced because UPS also brought on another what 200 mm-hmm. folks. Um, they weren't. This was not what they had been doing for the past right. five, ten, fifteen, twenty years. So they right. didn't have that same level yeah. of of comfort, same knowledge base. Yeah. Uh, so you know they they of course will be expected to make mistakes. So this idea of of being efficient, it doesn't always work out. Yeah. It doesn't always work out <laughs> that way, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like the the. The workers and the specialists who have been, you know, working in packaging of these really, you know, expensive and technologically sophisticated parts for jet engines for for years, and probably were in, and as as I said, I think we're in a, a trade union for, for for that purpose. They some of them joined the UPS, the new contracted UPS team, but a, a great number of them just retired or or left or or just didn't want to, you know, take that sort of like leveling down in the working uh, conditions. Mm-hmm. And as a result, yeah, you're dealing with, 
a, a less skilled form of, of labor in that particular context. And th in that case, it led to a lot of a lot of problems that cost them a lot of money. Yeah. So, I mean, they, they claim that it's the, the, the kinks have been ironed out after that first kind of rocky year. But that, that kind of problem is going to is definitely going to surface whenever you're you're moving from a, like a more specialized kind of task and trying to just, you know, sign it out to right. uh, to just whoever's the, the best bidder. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the, the writer also mentions two specific areas where we've seen uh, this attrition uh, yeah. as far as uh, full time jobs. Uh, moving over to uh, to becoming contractual, uh, and that was the uh, uh, clothing, mm -hmm. you know, uh, clothing and manufacturing, uh, as well as customer service. So clothing moving to China, customer service going to India, um, and there's an assumption. Well, I don't think it's so much an assumption. We know that the absence of labor unions, the absence of, mm -hmm. or the difference in in wage, you know, and uh, you know, those are those are apparent. But then there's also the assumption that comes with being a contractual employee mm -hmm. uh, that is as a contractor or working for a contractor that you don't have a pension. You right. don't have life insurance. You don't have health insurance. You don't have all these things that you have. Yeah. Retirement as, plan. Yeah. Retirement yeah. plan. So does that from from your understanding, does that, does that hold true across the board uh, that when you got folks that are coming in like what uh kelly you mm -hmm. know, one of the largest uh, uh staffing agencies mm -hmm. in the u.s does that hold true for, for those folks who work the millions of people that they have working for them these are people that are working performing jobs but they're doing it without benefits i don't i don't know for sure what the situation is in the in the big staffing agencies um but as, as far as the kind of benefits that are provided yeah for the employees and and whether or not they're they're given a nice a nice you know a nice package or even just something just something mm -hmm. um, in the way of benefits in addition to pay, but I I so I I haven't looked into detail into that so I, I'm not sure but I will say that part of the reason they're attractive for these for these for these other employers to look at them as a candidate for subcontracting is because they their their costs come in way lower right and so presumably they're not going to have the like a nice retirement package they're not going to be paying for health insurance they're not going to be paying for pensions and they're not going to be paying for these kinds of things for their employees or else they wouldn't be um competitive to get the subcontracting to get the contract from these other businesses in the first place right, right. so i so I, I can't i'm not you know just empirically like i'm not sure i haven't looked into the that uh, that in great detail, but I mean, again, just like they wouldn't seem so, I feel like they wouldn't seem so, they wouldn't be so competitive, right? If mm -hmm. they were offering a, I feel like a really generous set of benefits to their, to their employees, cause that would be driving their, their costs up. Right. You know, right. You know, it, it's funny. It seems like, you know, as corporations decide that they want to outsource, um, that there leaves a smaller, amount of money on the table mm -hmm. uh the same work is still there mm -hmm. so the the line that we're going to make it so that folks are being paid according to the to the market mm -hmm. we're not going to overpay folks uh but then you have to go with somebody who has to come up with their own structure their own corporate structure to employ folks and they have a you know it's a smaller amount now they have to also replicate 
that uh, administration yeah. and, you know, and all these different processes. So it's a smaller pool that folks have to work from. So I know I ask about assumptions uh, and only for the purpose of really just having us think about uh, the reality is there's only so much. There's only so much money that's going to go around when it comes to uh, to a business in our budget. Mm -hmm. So these folks that are contractors are generally going to be paid less than they would if they were full-time employees mm -hmm. you know certainly in, in the realm of uh of, of benefits when it comes that's to probably a safe that's what i'm saying it's probably a safe generalization to make yeah. yeah 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 now you know what else now there was something else that i thought was really interesting in here um they were talking about people that work for staffing mm -hmm. uh, uh companies and say uh janitorial mm -hmm. and they mentioned it says uh according to one uh, uh some research that had been done they listed people who work for one company mm -hmm. but serviced multiple companies they had them listed as working for multiple companies mm -hmm. right so this idea of when somebody asks you ask you who do you work for mm -hmm. right that becomes a really motor yeah you might work for this particular agency but mm -hmm. your job function is performed you know it, it could be four or five different places yeah you know well, what does that do for uh, this idea of you know we used to feel like you know you want to take pride in your work yeah take pride you know I, i'm proud to be an employee here yeah. because i feel like the company cares about me i have a work family and all this other stuff yeah uh, and it feels like that th that era that 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 time and space is really fast moving away yeah 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 i agree that's I guess it still exists in some some places and times <laughs> right now, but I think it's it's decreasingly the norm. Yeah, I think I think that little anecdote from the report about or from the from the story about the janitor who is classified as working at five different places, even though they're technically employed by one staffing agency, mm -hmm. is is a good example. Is a good is like an emblematic example for um, not just this particular area, but, you know, employment in general, um, labor in general now is seen as so uh, fragmented and piecemeal. And you have people, more people working multiple jobs, like just part-time gigs on the side than ever before. Yeah. And you have a lot of people who are underemployed and looking for something um, yeah. who don't even count in, to, in the, like the national employment statistics, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I felt like that little story about the the janitor in the in the reporter er, in the in in the report we read is is like it's kind of it crystallizes this larger kind of process that's like happening in the broader society yeah. with the way that work is is operating nowadays. Do you think that um, that we're at a point where because because um, because corporations are embracing this idea mm -hmm. of outsourcing uh, and to, to go back to the article, uh, they quote one of the, uh, I guess, a CEO or somebody, you know, mm -hmm. and they says um, not only are they not resistant, but basically they, they are expecting that all but non-essential uh, and you call them C-suite. Now, wh wh what's the is that like the white collar or it's like <laughs> it's uh, yeah a residue of my my time in the private sector, I guess, um, the, or a vestigial remnant. Um, yeah, it's like the executive class people, like the CEO, the CFO, you know, right. the, like the, the people at the top of the food chain. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, what this does as far as the American dream that used to be, and, and this was something that also got me the, 
this myth. Well, it's not. A, well, it's more myth now, but it, it was. There was a point in the um, American work history where you could mm -hmm. begin in the mailroom and you could ascend, you know, all the way up the corporate ladder. Um, and I think that was also one of those really salient points uh, that the writer mentions. He mm -hmm. says now that those positions are outsourced, mm -hmm. it bec you know th that's th that's not even a possibility. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what um, I don't know what is to really come of this other than uh, to show a need as far as labor is concerned mm -hmm. uh, that we've got to really rethink the intent. That's why I brought up. Yeah. I know there's one there's a concern with those who have businesses about yeah. being efficient and all that, but then there's also the concern that it's being it's really being influenced more so by greed. Yeah. Than anything else. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, I, I can I can elaborate on that some. Like, I think if you step back and like when I'm reading like the Wall Street Journal or, or the New York Times or something like that, and a story like this comes up, that's kind of, kind of interesting and showing you something new that you hadn't you hadn't really thought about too much before. I always try to think about yeah, exactly like you're saying. What's the intent or like what's driving it? What's the underlying kind of trend mm -hmm. that's driving it? And Greed is certainly one way to describe it, but on the other hand, as you also kind of alluded to at the beginning of our of our chat, it's there is this this increasing pressure for competitiveness, right? And to and to and to beat you know to to improve the bottom line, to to expand the profit margins, and that's just that's just business one hundred and one. But it's also the case that if we see something like this subcontracting and the end of employment happening on a bigger and bigger scale, it tells us something that like more and more companies are adopting this for a particular reason right and one consequence of it is going to be of this increasing you know like drive for productivity for competitiveness is going to be if it's going to lead to more of this kind of temporary employment more of this like precarious kind of contracted employment it's going to make the overall inequality problem even worse right, right? it's going to make it's going to make the the gap between you know, the 1% and the 99% or, you know, the rich and the rest even worse um, mm -hmm. as as wages and working conditions are continue to deteriorate in this way. And um, that's only going to continue to kind of exacerbate this broader social problem, right, that we have of this like deepening income inequality that ultimately hurts businesses, right? right? That ultimately is, is partly what is driving, I think, this this need for more competitiveness and this need to help to improve their productivity, their labor productivity. Um, because if inequality is getting so bad, I mean, it means you have people out there who can't afford to buy the stuff, the services and the products that the corporations are creating. And so it's going to be, it's this, it, there's a sense in which it's like a self-reinforcing loop, you know? And I think that's something that, um, that our corporate citizens don't seem to really look at. They don't take that into consideration. Yes, you may, save some money you may mm -hmm. actually um your sales may actually go up in the short a term. little bit yeah in the short term uh but but let's think about the was it a whitney pratt uh pratt and whitney pratt and whitney so these guys they're doing jet engines right mm -hmm. um so for airplanes for our airlines uh, but if people can't afford to buy exactly plane tickets if they can't afford to vacation because they're at, at they're they're employed and they don't have vacation time. That's not a benefit they have. Right. Their wages are twenty to thirty percent less than they will be making if they were not uh, contractual employees. Um, these things start to 
pan out on the, on, you know, when we look at things on the, on the long-term impact. Uh, and then I also got to bring up, because yesterday, uh, one previous conversation, I didn't say yesterday, but a previous conversation, we talked about the, you know, just municipalities, uh, states, and how mm -hmm. they tend to continue to balance their budget on those who are really the most vulnerable, mm -hmm. the poorest folks, you know, through of course, uh, excessive yeah. fines and fees and stuff like that. Progressive taxes. Yeah. yeah, progressive, you know, and when you when you look at that, that just means that that pool of people continues to grow larger. Yep. Uh, you know, so it's, there, there's some leadership, I think, that is that is really needed in terms of uh, the, the corporate citizens. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and then there's also some, uh, some solidarity. Last point I want to bring up and get your thoughts on this. Cooperative, um, uh, you know, employee-owned mm -hmm. uh, institutions, employee-owned companies. How do you see that? Because I've, I've, you know, I've been kind of following, just reading up a little bit on them, and I think they're promising. Uh, what, are you, what are your thoughts on those and, and how that could maybe help to balance out some of what we're seeing? Well, that's a, you know, that's an idea that has a, has a, has a long history <laughs> yeah. in, in the labor movement. But what, what, let me just ask, like, what, do you have specific examples in mind and kind of stuff that piqued your interest? Or? Sure. Uh, well, two in particular, and I, I can't give you these specifics, but in, in mm -hmm. general, there's a company in L.A. started mm -hmm. by, I think, is a young uh, African-American woman. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, she has a recycling company. And uh, I think all of her, her employees have stake in the in the company mm -hmm. they, they like own own stock basically yeah. or, or or they would if it were public public company or something right yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then there's there's another company which really uh this other example uh really stuck with me i mm -hmm. uh, don't recall where it's at but the the owner mm -hmm. i believe draws the same salary i think that everyone else yeah. does. so i mean it really is you know across the board that's pretty egalitarian yeah 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 truly yeah so and of course it's it's employee yeah it's employee owned yeah yeah i mean examples like that i think are really interesting um because it's obviously really inspiring and like it's 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 interesting to look at from a kind of experimental point of view and especially if they're flourishing and the and the employees are, are happy mm -hmm. and the or co-owners maybe if they think of themselves in that way yeah. are all happy there and and it's a way to keep morale up right among other things um, because yeah, it's that sense of you know collective ownership over what you're doing, collective ownership over the um, over the process of of work, you know, control over the conditions in which you work. And I guess yeah, that obviously I'm I, I see those kinds of experiments as in those kinds of those those form organizations of work is really inspiring. Mm -hmm. um, I'm always curious about how you know how democratic are they, like how much how much planning is really democratically organized and how much say does everyone get because. I do feel like once companies scale up to a certain level, mm. it become it starts to become unwieldy, or, or at least it, it begins to become tricky if you that if you want to stick as a principle to democratic planning and ownership over you know everything that the company does, mm -hmm. um, that just gets harder the more and more you scale up, yeah. right? Um, just because you're dealing with a bigger operation, there's more stuff happening. Like sometimes, anyway, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's easier on a on a smaller scale. It's yeah, a small business. Yeah. Um, and from uh, the data, I understand that the majority of businesses in, in the United States are small businesses. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that model might have more more traction yeah. on that level, yeah. uh, as opposed to you know a multinational corporation where you yeah. have 
you know, everybody is, yeah, you know. Yeah, I, I think absolutely, absolutely. And in any case, it's a cool way to think about, you know, um, keeping control in the community, you know, keeping it, like trying to help out your immediate, you know, neighbors as much as you can, um, like with the, with the particular um, small business or, or something like that by, by just, you know, um, or I guess it doesn't, I mean, now we're so connected everywhere that it doesn't have to be necessarily so local because everyone, a lot of, you know, some people t telecommute to work and stuff, um, work remotely, but anyway, but yeah, it's, it's something that, um, anyway, we, we could probably, we could talk about this topic for a, lot, for a long time, right? I mean, because right. there's a lot to say about it, but I think it's, I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, uh, I appreciate uh, the conversation and the perspective. Yeah, for sure. All right. Where can folks follow you at? On social media yeah so the best option will be my twitter handle which you can just find me at jamie merchant or that's at path to praxis um, p-a-t-h-t-o-p-r-a-x-i-s okay good stuff all right folks uh we have come to the end we thank you all for tuning in we thank our sponsors the zakat foundation us we thank our engineers over at WCEV for making sure we come through loud and clear. I'm your host and producer, Tariq Alameen. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. And we remind you that the views expressed by the host and or guest are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. And with that, we leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.